Christopher Michael, who is an explorer. He is the founder of Nautilus Ventures, a seed stage firm here in Silicon Valley. He's an intelligent entrepreneur, and he's also a photographer whose work has been in the Smithsonian, New York Times, BBC, and many others. This is so great. I'm, I'm so pleased you've come. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Um, if you want something done, give it to somebody who's busy crushing it. I think that's the saying everybody knows. I added the crushing part. I don't know if you like that. Okay, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll get to some of the interesting balancing act of what you've done and uh, running a seed stage venture fund and projects like Infinity Labs and, and uh, military.com. But I want to start with your photography because it seems to be something you're really passionate about. You brought your camera today. Yep, it's uh, more than a passion. It's my main job, so yeah, it's okay, my cool. third career. Right on, flying for the Navy and then being an entrepreneur and an investor, and now I'm trying to be a photographer. Yeah, it's and I've been at it for a decade. So yeah, it's awesome. I was looking through your site, and and uh, Robbie reminded me that I need to tell people the site, uh, Christopher Michael spelled M I C H E L dot com. That's right. And then, I mean, I'm just going to turn the okay. screen over to here to you because we I were wish just, everybody could see this. This Another actually, one. this first photo was taken this this past weekend. Really, where's my that? favorite oh. photograph of the year taken this past weekend? Is this for the fires. Well, it's uh, Yosemite, and oh. when I went out there, it was really smoky. And yeah. it turns out bad weather makes for great photographs. It's so really if you can, moody. you can click on it, you can see kind of see what's going on there. But you can see wow. all the trees in the background. And yeah, there's my girlfriend Sophia. Where? Right here. Oh, so oh wow! Idea. What a silhouette. But there's uh, and there's another photo where there's several people walking toward uh, a launch pad or something. Yeah, I I've, uh, I did a Scroll a down. shoot for Yahoo where I went to Russia and did space training and then photographed um, the cosmonauts heading out to. Uh, oh yeah, there we yeah. go. It's kind of an Apollo picture. So one okay. of those is an American, mm-hmm. and these are three astronauts walking out to the Soyuz capsule in um, Kazakhstan and Baikonur. And Baikonur, as you probably know, is where they launch Soyuz. And you're Gagarin, and you know it's still operational. Chris, this is amazing. These really are such moody and striking photos. Even the the portraits, you know, the people they have interesting. Um, it's, it's a way you capture everybody. Thank you. It's it's just not the word that comes to mind. It's, it's nowhere close to cliche. There's a lot of photographs. There's a lot of photographers. I think it's probably a tough craft. It's tough. It's probably the toughest job I've ever had. Uh, but it's also the most fun. Basically, yeah. I get to go to the world's most interesting places and meet fascinating people and take photographs that are meaningful mm. to them and meaningful to other people. So um, it's really fun. And it's also fun to see my photographs being used in lots of places and lots of people's homes yeah. and offices. Yeah. And like, um, lots of scientific organizations have the pictures there and they mm-hmm. use them for fundraising or raise awareness for you know, climate change. And this is so really, it's really a um, it's sort of art meets journalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's the, a great way to describe your work. Now, I know the listeners aren't really looking at um, maybe the website right now, but there's one of that humpback whale. It's like completely out of the water. How do you capture that? Well, Is that right? <laughs> that was a story I did for Outside Magazine. Uh-huh. And I swam with humpback whales and uh, actually mothers and their calves. And I'll just say it was one of the great experiences of my life. Wow. I don't know if you've ever jumped in the water with a whale, but... Uh, you know, it gets your attention. Yikes, yeah. And the first thing that happens, I mean, we're, you know, maybe 100 yards from the whale. So the, t- the mama, 
You're in a wetsuit. No, no, I'm just in. Uh, oh, I'm, it's, it's snorkeling. Water. Snorkeling. It's in Dominican Republic. Oh wow! And you know the whales can do what they want. And what mm-hmm. what do the whales, the mamas, and the babies want to do? Unlike you'd see in safari, who they would want to get away from you, they came right to me. Oh my gosh! And the baby like basically like pushed itself against me. And they just were very, very curious and interesting. interesting. And um, that photograph is actually uh, a little misleading. So it's actually a whale bre- breaching mm-hmm. the water, and I inverted the photograph. So the photograph mm-hmm. is actually upside down. Oh. Most people, oh. Don't, most people don't get that. Yeah. I like pretending it's the other way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah I know. That's awesome. Well, this is really cool. I mean, we obviously have a design team. We need photographs, so we're going to connect after this. Okay, great. Figure out all that. Well, it's interesting because I'm going through an interior design at my house. Yeah, where? And my, where? I live in Noe Valley, and my designer is like, well, we definitely want to be using these photographs on the wall. And it's interesting because a lot of people have my photographs on the wall, and I don't. Because uh-huh. every time I see my photographs, I always think, well, this could be slightly better. You know, yeah. uh, I, I think about what I could be doing better to the oh photo. My so gosh. accepting your own art is like a thing. So you're just kind of constantly trying to work on it when, instead of relaxing when yeah. you're home. It's easier I to guess. relax with other people's photographs. Right. But when I see them in people's homes, I'm really surprised that they work as well as they do. Um, you know, it wasn't the, I, I don't shoot for the objective of sitting in a living room. I shoot right. for the objective of a story. Yeah. And, uh, but sometimes it works. Yeah, that's great. And in fact, a lot of Africa stuff has been working um, surprisingly with designers. Um, I wouldn't have thought it, but but you've gone to every corner of the world. Like you've gone to North the North Pole, yep. as well as Antarctica, These South are Pole, South Pole. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, South Antarctica. Pole. Well, I, I clarify because many people yeah. have been to Antarctica. The South Pole is its own difficulty right. to get there. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, but these are ninety-nine point nine, ninety-nine point nine percent of people in the world will never go there. Uh, so yeah, that's you know, so true. you're kind of capturing this moment for them. That's true. I do feel like I'm reporting back. Yeah. You know? And in fact, I'm giving a talk at the battery in a couple of weeks, and maybe we sort of we talked about that. And it's basically to bring stories from the world's most most remote places to other people. Because wow. you know, I think um, to some extent, it's kind of like how National Geographic used to be. I mean, that's how you saw the world. You know, right. 25 years ago before the internet. Yes. You looked at this magazine, and this is what you saw. And I think there, there are still places. I mean, you can do research on the internet, but I think a lot of people are curious about what's it like near space or at the South Pole or the North Pole or under the sea. And oh, yeah. I'm a regular person, and I'm going to share. Yeah. You know, but you have to go. View. I think to get people's attention in, in photography now, you have to kind of go maybe to extremes, you know, even with the way you capture it. And, and it has to be so excellent. Not that National Geographic historically was any. Was, Poor, but um, you know. Well, you know that's a good question. How do you um, differentiate yourself in a world of millions of photographs? I guess so. Yeah. And uh, for me, I think a lot of it is. Uh, I mean, it could be the places I go, but it's mostly the people that I'm capturing. So, I'll shoot landscape photographs, and you'll see a few. But that's not my passion. My passion is capturing, you know, you in your office or mm-hmm. a, an explorer at the South Pole, right? Mm-hmm. Or an astronaut or, you know, so it's a mm-hmm. personal story in an interesting environment. And that becomes a unique thing, like not other people. I mean, other people can do that kind of work, but there's yeah. no easy comparable set of images because they right. involve people. If you right. shoot, you know, half dome at Yosemite, you better get something unusual because people have shot that a lot. Right. right. Like you said, it's a little journalistic. It's in its flavor yeah. or in your perspective. Well, I mean, I'm writing story. I'm often writing the stories that go along with the photograph. So it is photojournalism. Right on. Um, um, do you have any fun tools you use for post-production? 
Um, mm, Photoshop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying to think if I, there's any, I mean, I've been using, I've been shooting the drone a lot more, so I've been doing a lot more video. Mm. I just came back from Greenland. Uh, you can see if you scroll down, there's some icebergs with a little sailboat mm. and um, pretty crazy stuff. And so that's requiring a whole different set of tools when you're doing video. Mm -hmm. And how do you... Are you putting that on your site or how are you getting those Yeah, out? I'm putting it in the site. I'm uh, giving it to people. I'm sending it out. It's part of the story. Um, I went to the South Pole with a company called Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions, and they like using the videos to mm. explain what's going on to people. And um, mm. But I prefer, you know, if you ask me, though, I prefer, I don't mind taking drone photographs or drone images, but I prefer still photographs. Yeah. Video is a whole nother world, you know? Yeah. yeah. So... So when we're evaluating what room, how the room's going to come together, we look at color, shape, form. Actually, the artwork is the content that also adds to all that story. Yeah. You must do that with each frame. Like when you're framing things up, you want, you know, give a strategy. Or... I do have a strategy. And, and in fact, this is um, when I give talks on photography, what I think about, I mean, I want to entertain people, but what I'd like to do is give people some tools that they can use in their lives um, relating to photography to make their photographs a lot better. Uh -huh. And I, I think in 15 minutes, I could teach anyone to take photographs that are much, much better than they may be taking today. And it's mm -hmm. not that hard. It's really just an approach. Right. You know, and I can tell you if you want. Yeah, I'd love you to. You want to know? I'd okay, love to do you take pictures with a camera? I do. Okay. And with your phone or with the, like an actual camera? Um, right now, I'd just be with my phone. Okay. Okay. Well, that's an interesting answer, right? For many people, that would be what they would say, which is I'm using a camera, but they mean their phone, really. Yes. And the primary problem with people using a phone is they treat it like a phone and not a camera. So mm -hmm. that means they move very quickly. Mm -hmm. they, they hold it up and they hit the go button yes. right away. And if you're using a real camera, let's say I have an Ocelot here. When you're taking a picture and I shoot film all the time, you're a little more methodical. You know, you think about where's the light? What, mm -hmm. what am I trying to achieve with this photograph? Um, how am I framing the photograph? What's in and out of the frame, right? Mm -hmm. So I look at very carefully at the edges mm -hmm. of my frame. You can do this with your iPhone, mm -hmm. right? I look, about, look at light, look at the subject. I deconflict objects in a frame. Yes. And what I mean is like... We call it tangents a lot of times. Okay, tangents. Yeah. I don't yeah. have people bunched up. Yeah. yeah I have yeah. people separated. Yeah. Looks way better. Yeah. So if you look carefully and, you know, use a rule of thirds, which is a setting I actually on your one. camera. Yes. Yeah. Um, if you do that and you take one good photograph, that is way better than a hundred average photographs that sit on iCloud and, you know, will just eventually get lost during sync, yes. you know, get the one photograph. Yeah. So that's my, you know, best recommendation to people, which is spend the time to get the one picture. So with interiors, cause I sometimes just take photos quickly so I can Instagram them. Okay. And before our, uh, we use Aubrey Pick who does all our interior photos. Okay. And you know, I'm always making sure I'm down low enough, yeah. so I'm not kind of lording over the image. I want to kind of be more into the furniture set. Um, That's a very important point that I didn't mention, which is, you know, you can move in three dimensions to get yeah. your image. Yeah. Don't you see many people with their photo? They almost feel like they're locked in to their stance. Yeah, they're five foot nine, so yeah. like, it's always at five yeah, foot yeah, nine. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, you know, good photographers move around, right? Yeah. And you have to move around to get the image, so you got it. Yeah. And that's a differentiator too, because people are so used to one particular angle on photography, which is five foot nine. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to see something different. Getting down low is amazing. I know. You know I, getting high. It's more is intimate, good. I think, yeah. at least for the, for like interiors. Yeah. I love it. I kind of like just a thin little blade of maybe the coffee table and the rest. Like you really see the ceiling. Yeah. And it makes love some that. negative space, like kind of above everything else. I, you know, I, I, you, you know, you're an artist, so you get it, but 
I mean, for many people, if they take one good photograph that they're proud of, maybe they can share it, they yeah. might get hooked. They might say, well, yeah. you know, I, I want to do another one of these. And so many people have this as a possibility for themselves. I teach photography at the Santa Fe workshops. And I just, you know, unlike piano or unlike painting, this is a very accessible art. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people can take good photographs. Mm-hmm. What got you hooked, Chris? Um, when I finished uh, Harvard Business School, my um, friend Anne gave me a little camera and I drove cross country from Boston, Massachusetts to yeah. California and I took some photos at Glacier National Park and oh, I yeah. said, well, you know, these photos are pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I started taking more photos and getting more feedback and pretty soon I just loved it. And you know, it's like, I think it's a game for the brain. I mean, why do people play golf all the time? Because they get uh, kind of intermittent variable rewards in what they're doing and photography is like that. Any moment I could take the world's greatest photograph, mm-hmm. you know, so it just really appeals and, you know, memories are the currency of our lives. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, it's pretty important. It's funny you say that. Sometimes the, the photographs um, are the memories you end up, you, you'd see a photograph from when you were eight, eight years old yep. and it's from in your parents' photo album and that's like burned in your memory. But then other times there's no photograph of it and you just have this imagination of what it was like that day. Yeah. And then that actually doesn't doesn't hold true all the time because then you kind of it gets what rewired. That's true. Um, That's true. But I mean, don't you think in a way um, photographs trigger series of memories? So you know, on uh, the iPhone now they have live photographs. Have you seen that? Where you, you yeah? You, you, you Do you like that? It, you hold it down. Well, you know, I have mixed views on it. But what's interesting is you're not getting a single image anymore. You're now getting a little short memory. Yes. So in a way, photos for me are kind of like long form live images. When I see a photo from when I was eight, I don't just remember that oh, yeah. photo. I remember a bunch of things about that particular event where I might not remember the event at all. So I think mm-hmm. there are many elements here. One is you're right. Your memories may not be truthful. I mean, photographs are only directionally truthful mm-hmm. as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think photographs are kind of like um, pointers to memories that could be lost. And I don't have the best memory, so I'm always happy to have all of these photos, like the photo we just took together, right? Mm-hmm. So in 10 years, I'll look at that and remember this podcast and remember what we did, and mm-hmm. it's a cool thing. And it might turn out to be a lot more important than just a cool thing. It might turn out to be a very important photograph. Yeah. That's awesome. I also feel the same thing about these podcasts, like in 10 years, to listen back and think yeah. about what we were thinking, what we were saying. Sometimes politics would have come in a couple of years ago. Because of the election right now, we're talking maybe the fires. And, yeah. You know, it's a little it's a, moment in time. It's an important point. Uh-huh. You think about dating particular things, right? So one way to date things are with people or mentioning a specific date. But the other are uh, objects that appear in these images or in these podcasts. Oh, right. Right? Oh, objects would be like the technology you're using. I mean, an yeah. iPhone in 20 years is going to be a weird... People are going to be like, what is that thing? You guys actually held something? I don't know what they'll say. Or cars. Yeah. yeah. Fashion. You know, your fashion is timeless. Yeah, we'll, we'll see, won't we? <laughs> yeah, the photograph, yeah. we'll see in 10 years. People are going to have a point of view for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, are there any I mean, it's amazing. Things? I just don't see people wearing ascots and purple pants like you're wearing now. <laughs> <laughs> you, and, you pull it and, off and really you, well. I know, and the way you rock in here with a boa. I didn't expect I, that. I mean, it's just, <laughs> Yeah. Um, are there any other uh, like artistic disciplines you dabble in? You said you're working on interior design in your house. Do you enjoy that part of it? You have a designer. You're you're. You I know, do. Thinking about artwork. You're thinking about. Are you thinking about the shapes and the color and the patterns and all that? Together. Uh, I well, you know, I'm doing it with my girlfriend, so I basically just defer to her. Okay. I'm like, honey, that's a great idea. I love what you're thinking. 
Yeah. Uh, no, I, no point of view, Chris. I do. You She's know, not listening. That's yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I really enjoy the process, uh, but it is, um, it's a little challenging for me in the sense that um, I'm OCD, so I want things to be done kind of quickly. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that process takes a long time because, you know, and the other thing is there are so many points of variability. So in a way, that's why I think it's useful to work with professionals because, um, just even knowing what the choice set might be is really a quite complicated. There's just a lot of variables. Sure, there could be like, there's this many choices, but then you might really should be only looking at 12 of them. Yeah, exactly. Know? Or three, really. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when anything's possible, you know, when you when you buy a couch at room and board, they've got like seven options. It's amazing today that you could even do that. But, you know, when you're working with a designer, they're like, oh, the couch is too high, too low, no problem. Yeah. What fabric do you want? All fabrics are possible. Yeah. So you basically, you know, that's why you, you know, you have, if you have the potential for infinite choice. You need someone that's going to actually curate edit it down. Yeah, curate your, exactly. your options. Yeah. And now the, the timeliness of design like our craft is, is hard for a lot of people, especially in our, our expedient world. You know, you take your photographs and we can, you know, dim it just a little bit. Or if we're working on a new website, we can change the font color or the font, and it's like that. Like that, yeah. But this is old school in a way, interior design. It's atoms, not bits. Yes, yes. <laughs> atoms are harder to move around. Yes, but, but it's, it's like built by men and women's hands. Like someone's like hammering together a sofa frame, and that takes time to do. And then they're going to staple gun it, you know, all the fabric on yeah. there. Well, it's, but that's one of the best things, I think, about the process is to hear about the people creating the furniture. I do, too. And the fabrics. It's really a cool... You know, there's, there's just a lot of depth to the stories of, mm-hmm. you know, who created all of these things. I, I love it, too. It, you know, we're, we're working with everything from sofas, but also to, you know, hardwood floor guys. And they're, like, gluing these little herringbone pieces together recently. Yeah. And it's like, it takes forever. I mean, in and those a way... Those guys are fun. They're in funny. a way, you're enabling a whole industry of artists to exist. Craft people, yeah. Yeah, if you weren't there doing this, it'd be much more difficult for them to mm-hmm. do what they're doing. We just had this photograph, actually, Instagrammed it yesterday. Uh, I'm not sure who the photographer is, but somebody else in the office sourced it for our client who's from Seville, Spain. And it's like this road to Seville is what it looks like to me. Mm. And it's, it's some, I'll show it to you later. It's similar to um, some of your photographies in terms of the, the coloring. Mm. It's really beautiful. Mm. But, but that says something so that's also like part of our whole craft you know what does that room say at the end of the day and how does it meet someone's expectation our client's expectations it's got to have some familiarity and amplify them their lives when they walk in that room do you ever give your clients um information about the art or who built the furniture is that you know because if you think about like if you went to a museum you'd see a little artist placard and it would say you know here's the artist or here's what yeah, was created yeah yeah is how does that how does that information live with a piece how do people know i think you know they don't sign we the couch, describe right? it we don't yeah we don't know every you know there's like a thousand choices yeah, or, yeah. or three thousand skews each project or or more that's a lot yeah. you know so but it's all available, and if people are re- some people have more interest than others, Chris. So we put together a package, certainly the art package. Yeah. If they go to a big gallery, that's documented and given to them, almost for insurance purposes too. Yeah. But the, the some of the furniture is notable, and it would be presented to them when we're talking about it when they select it. But yeah, we don't really do a booklet, but we'll on a request. Maybe yeah. we should. Well, I don't know. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, you know? it's all cool. It's cool to know the provenance of pieces. People talk about blockchain 
changing how mm. we think about information. And, you know, it'd be interesting that, I mean, maybe in the future, everything you see, we can know where it came from. And that could be useful for just curiosity. It could be useful for valuing things. It also could be useful to make sure the things that we're getting are the things we think we're getting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like they say, a lot of honey isn't really coming from where you think it's coming oh, from. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, it's supposed to be a health benefit if it's local. I mean, it's not local. I'm sick. Yeah, it's like coming from, <laughs> it's coming from China, you know? Yeah. It's like, That's wrong. Let's see, a few weeks ago, you tweeted a Leonard Fried quote. Uh, Photographing is an emotional thing, a graceful thing. Photography allows me to wander with a purpose. Is this how you feel when you're... This is, this is basically um, describing my life. So mm-hmm. six or seven months of the year, every, you know, it seems like every month I am away someplace very unusual, uh-huh. often by myself. And I'm, I basically wander with a purpose. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't know what it would be like to wander without a purpose. You know, the purpose for me is that I'm, I'm trying to uncover something, um, and it's almost like an insatiable need. You know, I remember landing. I took an Iceland Connect flight from Reykjavik to um, uh, Kulusuk, and basically in Greenland. And, um, you know, I get off, and I walk to this little Inuit town that has like 600 people. And I see, and I go down by the water, and I see a backhoe pulling three whales out of the water. Because they're dead? They're dead. They've yeah. killed them. Yeah. Oh, so okay. This is they hunt them. Yeah. And I see a family of five mm-hmm. uh, with knives, like from a two-year-old to like a 20-year-old, come out and wow. start butchering these whales. Mm-hmm. I love whales. You Preparing. saw what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, but, you know, this was a kind of deep moment. I mean, I was diving. I mean, I was there with them all day long as they... Did their thing and so that wandering leads to stories and knowledge and um maybe art and some of that art i mean i debated whether or not to share photographs of a two-year-old you know carving up the head of a whale mm-hmm. you know because people like whales and people don't like to see two-year-olds with knives but you know another way to look at it is uh, a two-year-old with a knife or a three-year-old with a knife is fu- could be fine it's part of their culture yeah. they, they live that world all the time so something that's strange to us may not necessarily, and maybe something we don't even like, may not necessarily be bad. So I've, I've, I'm all the time having to reframe and reconsider how I see the world. You kind of edit what you're giving to uh, maybe your your audience? I do edit. A, I mean, I mean yeah. you, know, you can't say everything just because it's true. In your, if you're in a conversation, you can't just blurt out things that are truth because it's sometimes socially unacceptable. Yeah, you're right. And you're right. and like it's okay for their culture, this two-year-old with a knife, but is it okay in our culture? Just as an example. Well, I de- some of the things you. What are some of the things you've decided not to share? Yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, I I mean, sometimes I think about um, is the reward going to exceed the cost? And the cost uh-huh. would be I don't want to get into a like online debate Twitter about. Debate. Like <laughs> hunting whales and whether native people should be able to do that or not. I don't, yeah, you know, I yeah. have a point of view, um, yeah. but I just think it wouldn't necessarily be productive. Um, yeah. You know, and I try to be, I, if I have a bias, and I, I do have a bias, my bias is to be positive. So my mm-hmm. bias is when I go shoot in Africa, so I've shot a lot in Africa. In fact, mm-hmm. I did a project for IDEO in Congo and they gave me some very specific guidance and they said, you know, we want you to we want you to bring back images of of positive Africa, not necessarily you know like you think about all these poverty images of Africa that people are used to seeing, and that exists. I mean that's a real thing, but it's not the only story in Africa. There are many stories in Africa, and it doesn't take very long to find 
wonderful stories. So I guess mm. I try to bring back things of beauty and of interest and of knowledge. Sometimes they're difficult images, but mostly I try to see things that people are positive, that people are proud of and they're positive about. And there's a lot of that. And in fact, I think this is what's missing. This is my view. One of the things that's really missing in how we see the world is there's all sorts of incentive for outrage. And there's very little incentive that to communicate things that make people feel good. Mm, that's true. It's not going in, in, in the direction you're hoping for. Yeah, everything's about, you know, look at all the horrible things Facebook is doing. Uh-huh. Not the positive things Facebook is doing, right. right? It's like all the horrible things in the environment, but there are many good stories about people doing good things, right? So, um, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you saw probably has released kind of statistical data about the state of the world. And it's basically statistically better in almost all dimensions. Yeah. But we don't have that feeling. We have a feeling that things are yeah. really bad. And so, yeah. I, you know, I think for our own sake, um, we should see the world a little bit more positively because I think that's the real world. And that doesn't diminish all the bad things happening, but... Um, it's like all the tough questions, you know, we've been, I've been following all these you know, reporters who are getting their press passes. And yeah, right, right, right. And they're trying to ask these questions that I think nobody's asking, but they're not also balancing it with, um, this is also really good too. Can you tell me more about that? It could be a healthy thing. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a no Trump fan. I used to be a Republican no. a long time ago, but I, I really don't, I'm not a fan at all. But, you know, the difficulty is um, the guy can do nothing right. And that doesn't mean that he's not doing anything right. It just means that we have such a negative bias in how we see the world. And, you know, the truth is that the other side sees the same thing. So we're all looking at the world through a particular lens and we're, we're judging and hearing things that confirm that bias that we have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's not the truthful world. The truthful world is a little bit more nuanced than a very simple black and white. You know, I always like to say when I'm looking at um, a subject or an, an incident or a challenge, it's like the truth lies in the middle. Yeah. It's, like, it's not this one or this one. Yeah. It's, it may be 45, 65 or... or Although the air quality, I think, is worse than we, <laughs> <laughs> than we think. What is it? Particulates? Yeah. 1,000... 820. I know. I think we have, what do we, what do we measure in here? 700? It was uh, 560 yeah. and then, you know, gosh, that was not good. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's see, you, your, um, your experience in the Navy and working at the Pentagon, you know, how did that influence your former investing and how did that, how does that influence your photography? But bullet point, Pentagon, that's crazy cool. Yeah, well, it's funny. I had a um, my address. So I was a I don't know twenty seven or twenty eight when I went maybe twenty maybe twenty seven when I went to the Pentagon. I worked for a very senior admiral. He had two hundred thousand people working for him, and my address was uh, uh, Christopher Michael, Lieutenant United States Navy, the Pentagon. I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah. It was like just the Pentagon. Just the Pentagon. Yeah. No, no zip code. Yeah. I had to get a room number 4466, but just like the Pentagon. Uh-huh. And that was pretty cool. Uh, uh-huh. It was interesting. You know, the, um, uh, I was running military.com at 9-11. That plane hit right below my office. I was actually there. Get out. Uh, I wasn't in the Pentagon. I was staying at the, the hotel across the street, and I went out there and watched all the smoke come out. I was thinking about it. But your specific question is, how does, it, how does my time in the military um, influence my current life or my life as an investor. Well, uh, as a photographer, I guess I'd say I didn't, you know, I wasn't taking photographs when I was flying airplanes, hunting Russian submarines or fighting in the drug war or 
I was in the Middle East doing stuff. I, I took basically no photographs. So I have, I basically got to do some of the coolest things in the world and I have really no pictures of them. And so I really regret oh, yeah. that moment. And this oh, is one of the reasons I, I really encourage young people to be taking a lot of photographs oh, wow, because yeah. you can't go back in time. Yeah. And so I think about that. Um, obviously, my first company was military.com, and basically it was Facebook for the military started in 1999. Oh, okay. It's still around today. You yeah, can check it yeah, out. Just Google it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and, and as an investor, I sit on some boards, and I, I guess the, the biggest thing that I took away, or one of the biggest things I took away from military service is that in, the, in my squadron, for example, we had a very motivated group of very talented people. So I don't know what people think of military people, but they're a pretty diverse group of people, actually. Mm -hmm. And they're not motivated through money. They're motivated through service or camaraderie or because they're acknowledged for the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in business, we think about motivating people with money. Mm -hmm. You know, I sit on boards where we're like, okay, well, how do we get more out of our employees with a bonus structure? And, and we don't have that in the military. And so I think it's actually a big mistake in society that we think money is the big motivator for people. And I actually don't think that it is. Mm -hmm. I think the big motivator is that people find that their work has a purpose, that they're mm -hmm. acknowledged for what they're doing. They feel good about what they're doing and they're growing in their jobs. Last you know? one, yeah. We, yeah. We've been focused on all that okay, with our team too. And the growing part we've highlighted the last couple of years. Yeah. I think, I think it's what we all want in our lives. It's the source of meaning. Yeah. And I think a lot of, because a lot of companies do have the ability to create complicated bonus and pay plans, they tend to focus on that and they don't tend to focus on the cultural elements of where you work. You know, if you have a boss that you admire that's trying to help you and you have a culture of trust, you know, lots of good things happen. Mm -hmm. um, so I learned that from the military. You could counter that with um, you know, which company, if the, if the end goal is really just shareholder or, you know, returns, shareholder returns, or yeah. earnings, um, which culture is winning? You know, which one, is it the one that uh, makes sure people are growing, makes sure that, that there's a happiness in the culture, um, or is it the ones that bonus? to get more money? Well, you know, banking, I don't know, are they winning or not winning? I mean, I think that they were winning from a financial point of view for a long time. A lot of people made a lot of money in banking and they, they think of it as a caustic and problematic structure. So I think there's ways to overpay high performers to stay for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and in Silicon Valley, we have to be careful because sometimes there's these little companies that get a lot of attention, but they may have a problematic culture. You know, we saw that at Uber and some other places because they had a product that was so successful. I think you really have to deconstruct and find, you know, kind of normal companies. Uh, uh, my girlfriend works at Facebook and they have a good culture. She likes her boss. She works mm -hmm. in HR. She likes her boss. She's learning. Uh, they have a, they care about their employees and, you know, and I think that there's more and more of that going on. I think, um, I think a lot of companies are st starting to say, we want to be on the best places to work list. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, if you have a good culture where people can be transparent and truthful and they trust their bosses, good things happen and these companies stay around. And if you don't, you have implosions. And we've seen it in the Valley. You know, Uber still struggles with all of the problems that they had in the past. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, good people have a lot of choices of where they're going to work. So how long did you run your investment fund? Uh, well, I'm still running it, uh, um, okay. but it's not my main job. Yeah. Um, I guess I did it seriously for about six years. Uh -huh. And some of the, uh, you've had a lot of great investments. I think 50 different companies you've invested in. Is Might even I, be 100 now. I don't oh, know. great. Oh, yeah, yeah. That sounded low. I figured you were 
excelling above that. But what are some of the ones you're proud of that are notable and which ones maybe you learned from? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, there's a number of companies that I really love and they often relate to what we just talked about, which is, is there a CEO that cares as deeply about their employees as they do their product? And uh, I've been involved, lucky to be involved in some great companies like that. Um, I think about Goodreads. Do you all know Goodreads? It's part of uh, Amazon now. Okay. Um, if you have a Kindle, that's the social network as part of the Kindle. And Otis Chandler, who is a wonderful CEO, you know, built a really cool company that was about reading. He really mm -hmm. wanted to make books a bigger part of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And it was really an honor to be part of that company. Oh, do you know David Risher? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, that's he was the, one of the key people at the company. Yeah. Okay, and he has yeah. World Reader, and it's oh. a philanthropic organization for oh. him. And he, he gets Kindles, and it goes all over Africa. I wish I had the data, but, I mean, hundreds of thousands of downloads of books that kids otherwise wouldn't have. Them. I mean, it's pretty amazing, yeah. right? It's I love that. It's pretty amazing. Um, Madison Reed, uh, in a sector that I know nothing about, hair color. Mm -hmm. And Amy Arid is one of the great CEOs of Silicon Valley. She was the chairwoman of Glide. She's just this, yeah. She has a culture of love and excellence. Uh -huh. And it's really cool, yeah. and I'm lucky to be involved in that company. So, and then Blue Bottles, when Blue I Bottle, yeah, yeah, Blue Bottle was I love Blue Bottle Coffee, and yeah. uh, it's interesting because <laughs> I used to hang out at that coffee shop, and then a good friend of mine became the CEO, and um, it was good. Yeah, it was a good investment. Yeah, good. Um, so you served as mission commander. You know, we have a little bit of time left here. I'd love to hear about the naval service because it's not often I get to sit down with. Uh, you know, do I seem like someone that was in the heroic, military or not? Um, I'm not heroic. Yeah, I mean, no, no, no. I don't. I don't have this box around what people would look like either. Okay. But, but people always say to me, they're like, "You were in the military," yeah. and I'm like, "Well, what do you mean? What are you saying?" Yeah. One of our workmates, Tad, was in too. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah, but um, tell me about that that service and well, and thank you by the way uh, as of last month. Well, you know, my view, every day, but thank you. My view about Veterans Day is. Um, I get a lot of people thanking me and I'm thanking a lot of people, mm -hmm. but I always feel like I should be thanking other people. I mean, the truth is I went into the Navy uh, after Top Gun because it yeah. looked, really, looked really cool. <laughs> to get chicks? <laughs> pretty, pretty much. You get a leather jacket, you're flying jets. It's pretty awesome. Uh, but <clears throat> I loved the Navy 10 out of 10. And, you know, like I had to work on Christmas sometimes. And I, and I, I had some dangerous things happen when I was in the military. But, and I fortunately didn't have to hurt anyone when I was in the military, which mm -hmm. is good. I had a great time. So although people thank me, frankly, I should just be thanking everyone for giving me the opportunity to do it. And that's really what I believe. Um, it's a little different potentially for people that are serving in combat mm -hmm. uh, or serving with a tremendous sacrifice. And there are a lot of people that are doing that. You know, I didn't go to Iraq and Afghanistan in the military. I wasn't in Vietnam. I was in World War II. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these are, that's a kind of service that's um, where you're, you know, every day risking your life and your psychological safety um and that's a kind of real sacrifice you know i'm not diminishing yeah, anyone yeah. else's service but my service was easy and fun and interesting mm -hmm. and um it's not always like that yeah it's, it's a fair uh, way to state that but and uh, i think everybody always appreciates everybody who serves yeah it's, it's, a, it's something a cool, that everybody can agree on. Yeah, it's a we cool. It. It's a cool thing, you know. And and many people in the United States and all over the world have worn a uniform. And um, you know, when you do the things that you do when you're coming mm. of age are increasingly important in your lives. I mean, that's what we started our company, Military.com, to keep people connected throughout their whole lives to their units and the people they served yeah. with. And it's kind of like alumni 
program, kind of. Was it? It was ninety nine when you started that. Uh, yeah, ninety nine. Yeah, and what do you think about the draft? Because like my dad was in the military. He, okay. He had a more administrative role because it was in between wars. Which service? Uh, Army. Okay. And you know, most people had more of a connection. Uh, that, Generations older than us, right. you know, we have this connection. What do you think about that? There is no draft; it's all a volunteer. It makes for politicians to be able to make decisions because they know their kids aren't necessarily going to go in a different way. Right. So there's there's arguments pro and con the draft, and almost everyone in the military, particularly military leadership, is against the draft. Okay. And I'm against the draft too. Mm. The main reason that people are against the draft is. If you think about it as a company, so what if I said in your company, what we're going to do is we're going to find like five people on the street and they're going to yeah. be working here tomorrow, whether they want to be here or they don't, right? So point. basically, you know, you, you have a lot of employees that yeah. are not psyched about being at the company. So the people don't want that. People want people that want to be there. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's really important. And, you know, when I was serving, I would say, you know, the vast majority of everyone is really psyched to be there. We're having, I mean, we're having a good time doing interesting things. So I think people are against it in that general way. Mm-hmm. But what do I think is in people's best interest? I think, you know, I'm a kind of a libertarian, so people should make decisions. But I would say to any young person or to anyone of any age, being part of something bigger than yourself is a useful thing in your life. Yeah. You feel good about it. It connects you to things. You learn things. You get pushed out of your comfort zone. And the military service did that for me. And I think it does it for a lot of people. But there are other options. You know, there's the Peace Corps. There's jobs. You know, uh, Teach for America is a great example. I mean, do I think we should compel everyone to do it? Uh, I don't know. But I do think that we should value in society people who do do these things. And I think, frankly, rather than go work at Goldman Sachs, I think a lot of people would be better off having had a different sort of experience, mm-hmm. you know, maybe helping other people, mm-hmm. you know, or, or uh, one of their, one of five careers, do yeah. a little bit of it. And then well, I think we on. live in a new world where a lot of people are doing a lot of different things. So, yeah. Um, um, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. So it was one of the best things I ever did. Yeah. It sounds like you had a riveting, it's, your eyes are sparkling. You had a riveting experience. Yeah, it was, it was great. Um, okay. Well, um, I'm going to wrap it up with this and thank you again for coming in. You're a smart guy, successful guy. Oh, no. Okay, this is the actual question I really wanted to get out because I love this one. You were one <laughs> of the protagonists in Bill Murphy's book. Um, the book was called How Three Harvard Business School Graduates Learned the Ten Rules of Successful Yes, it's called The Intelligent Entrepreneur. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, that's sort of speaks volumes of the, of the, the podcast. <laughs> um because I can't read my own notes, you know. It's it's but, a long title. So. <laughs> you got it. Generally, I understand. Yeah, thank you. Oh, can you say it for us again? It's the intelligent entrepreneur. Yes. And so, what are some of the rules you, you could share with our listeners out of those ten, or or all ten, or? Gosh, I don't know if I can share any of the ten. You know, it was interesting because I didn't write this book. This uh-huh. is a book that um, Bill Murphy um, wrote, and he found three people graduating in 1998 from Harvard Business School. And he interviewed them and interviewed all the people they worked with and um, created this book. So I'm one of three protagonists in this book. And, you know, when somebody goes and investigates your, he used to work with Bob Woodward. Uh He's an investigator. So when he's investigating your life and the stories of your life, you know, this book isn't all like Chris Michael's great leader. This book is the whole picture. And the, the story that, the story that he talks about in the book, which I think is, could be interesting to people, um, but not easy was 
you know, I started this company in 1999 and I raised a lot of money for it. And in March of 2000, the world blew up yeah. with the internet. And, you know, a year later I got fired as the CEO. And, you know, it's one thing to be sitting in your office um, in the guest chair and the new CEO says, maybe it's best that you don't come by here anymore. I mean, I created that company. Yeah. And uh, so for basically six months, I, you know, swam every day and thought about all the mistakes I made um, running that company. Eventually, I got to come back as the CEO and we fixed the company. And um, those lessons are the lessons that they talk about in the book. And I can tell you quickly what they are. That's helpful. Yeah. For me, the, the key lesson relates to team. And that, that's really about people, passion, and performance. So I think successful companies are successful because they have A players. And if you have people that are not on the team, that are not passionate, or you have people that are destructive but talented, you know, these are complicated kinds of mm -hmm. groups of people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's your job as the CEO to build a culture where that's not that's not tolerated. So mm -hmm. basically if you're incredibly talented and not good with other people, you know, the CEO needs it's to be involved. Not a good fit. Yeah, the CEO needs to be involved and say that's not okay. Mm -hmm. And so I made a lot of mistakes relating to team dynamics. Um, I was an I was 30 years old, although now wouldn't be considered that um, that young in 1999, that was a young CEO. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, my, I had my own insecurities that led to some of these. So there were some team problems. There were problems relating to um, confusing activities with outcomes. Activities could be, you do a podcast. Mm -hmm. Is that really driving business for your firm? I don't yeah. know, maybe uh -huh. it is. Could be interesting to you, I don't know. Yeah. Um, PR, you know, is it really driving an outcome? Even if you're in the front page of the New York Times, that's not necessarily a business outcome, could be. Uh, but I often, oftentimes when companies raise too much money, they get confused between sort of activities and outcomes, right? Uh, what really matters in the company. And when we were out of money, we got focused really quickly on I'm only doing, doing the things yeah. um, that really mattered. So, you know, it's, you know, I, and I, no, and maybe the third is just the kind of culture that you've built in the company. And that's, that's. I believe more than anything, a culture of trust is the most important thing that can be built in a company. Maybe trust and excellence. And there's a great book I can recommend to everyone. It's called The Thin Book of Trust. Thin Book of Trust, you can Google it. And it's only like 50 pages long and it's m more leadership information in those 50 pages than I learned at Harvard Business School and then in the Navy. And wow. it's really just talking about what that means, right? Do you, you know, if, you, if someone trusts you, you can tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, if they don't trust you, it doesn't matter what you say to them. They just don't see it that you, they don't see that you have their best interest in mind and aren't going to hear it the way you intend it. Mm -hmm. um, so those were kind of the key. That's great. That was key things. But I mean, it was a drama. It was a highly dramatic uh, few years of my life. I bet. That's cool. That you got it turned around. Yeah, I was really that. lucky. I mean, it was basically imagine taking a seven forty seven and putting it nose down into the ground and pulling up in the tail section was still on the ground, you know, yeah, is yeah. that close. We were yeah, like yeah. days from bankruptcy. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, tenacity, you know, this is one of the minor lessons, but tenacity matters in life. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, a lot of people, I had the former commandant of the Marine Corps, Carl Mundy told me to give up. He basically said, sometimes you need to know when to quit. <sighs> and uh, well, you know. That would have been tough to hear from someone you respect so much. Yeah, well, he was right in one sense, which mm -hmm. is it was so bad for so long, people are like, well, this isn't a real company or mm -hmm. you should shut it down. And, and we never did. And, you know, when I, when I give talks, I always ask people, because a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, wonder, when should I stop 
the company? When, because you know, ninety percent of companies fail, right. or whatever. So yeah. when should I stop? And you know, the, the quick answer is when you stop believing. Yeah. So as long as you believe, I think it's worthwhile. But when if you, you stop don't saying believe, Churchill's quote, "Never, ever, 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 ever give up," and yeah. you stop saying that. Yeah. Well, if you don't believe in your product anymore, or you don't believe in the people or the market, it might be time. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't misrepresent yeah. how you think about it. But other than that, I mean, people, it's funny. I think what differentiates Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurial world from the rest of the world is the following idea. In a big company, when they try something that doesn't work, they kill it. Yeah. And in a little company, when you try something that doesn't work, well, that's just your every day because it's not working often. And as it gets harder and harder, you put more and more pressure on figuring out new ways to do things, right? And it's that pressure that creates the diamonds of these companies. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen in big companies because it's too hard. I mean, we lived at the office. We worked seven days a week. We gave it everything. It was like our lives. It was like as important to us as our families. Mm-hmm. And it was in that difficult period that the innovation happened. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen really easily, like, you know, nine to five at M&M Mars. Where they're like, well, what's the next innovation in chocolate? Yeah. You know, could happen, but. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great information. Great talk. Great podcast. One for the books, Chris. This is awesome. Yeah. Um, So what's your favorite room in your house and why? Uh, Right now it's my bedroom because I have uh, a... um, air filtration system running at high speed. <laughs> so it's my, sa- it's my safe room. <laughs> it's your safe space. <laughs> it's kind of true. Well, we're, be- we're working on my house right now because I'm trying to build. Right now I have basically the kitchen and my bedroom are the two rooms that I use the most. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to build more spaces to live in. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me, maybe it's just my personality, but I often don't find myself living in a lot of spaces. They can look nice, but they're not comfortable or useful in a everyday way and mm-hmm. i like spaces that are that have those dynamics mm-hmm. cool well great man um thanks for coming okay it's awesome thank you high five <laughs>